And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk, one of our very special Thursday shows. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Our show is America Can We Talk, and occasionally I like to give great thanks to the singer, our theme music, I Am America. Krista Branch is singing it. Her husband wrote all the lyrics and the music, and that is a great theme for this show. We are I Am America. It means everyone who speaks up, stands up, and gets in the fight, you're the one that defends America's future. So welcome to America Can We Talk. Today we have a wonderful guest on our, for our Thursday show. He's an author named Mark Fulmer. And I'm going to show you his book. I always hope I'm not, I'm doing this correctly. It's not backwards. This show, okay, there you go. This is his book. And I've neatly put all the questions we're going to cover right here are these stickies. Uh, but this book is called The Wuhan Incident. And the subtitle is Bioweapons and the Emerging Global Reset. I already liked the book when I read the title because I love connecting what happened with Wuhan, the COVID-19 coronavirus issue, and ultimately it, how it enabled many of the world actors who are pushing the great, the great global reset, the evil global reset. So um, this, uh, I'm gonna actually want him, I'm gonna introduce him in just a second. I want him to tell you more about his career background because he really is uniquely qualified to talk about issues like this because of the professional life he's led. So let's please welcome to the show, Mark Fulmer. Thanks, Debbie. I, I'm so glad to be on your program. And a little bit about my background. I started my career work in public health. Uh, actually, I was in public health epidemiology uh, doing uh, what we call disease uh, outbreak investigations. So anything that dealt with the outbreak of a communicable disease, tuberculosis, um, I, I was the one that work with a team of epidemiologists that would do the contact tracing and all of the investigation process uh, for that disease outbreak. So I was doing that work and lo and behold, it wasn't too long after 2001 uh, that I had received the call from an individual that was a director in a bioterrorism surveillance. Uh, unit. And uh, it was a rather strange phone call. And, and um, matter of fact, uh, when, when I received the call, they explained to me about, well, under Homeland Security Presidential Directive 21, which established the president for, for um, establishing and organizing what we call biosurveillance units or bioterrorism units, across the United States. So this director said, hey, I know of your background in disease outbreak epidemiology. We would like to have you come on board and, and be involved with the development of biosurveillance units here in North Texas. Of course, I, I thought, okay, this is a joke. Where's the punchline at? But lo and behold, uh, under uh, George Bush's authorization, I was involved with some of the earliest bioterrorism surveillance programs here in North Texas. So as I began that work, the focus at that time, Debbie, was to uh, look at dealing with what we call these category A agents. Um, there are three types of agents, A, B, and C. Category A was the broadest, and that was the greatest concern at the time because category A pathogens uh, there was a lot of conversation on that we picked up on terrorist chatter uh, that uh, they were going to weaponize things like smallpox. Uh, we were dealing here in North Texas the threat of uh, bacillus anthracis, of weaponizing anthrax, uh, tularemia, uh, plague, uh, any of that normally occurring biopathogens that can be taken by a terrorist group and weaponized. And uh, so that actually became the focus of our work. Um, we funded uh, what we call level three Sentinel Lab networks here in North Texas. And we had a program that we worked closely with uh, Homeland Security. It was called BioWatch. And what BioWatch did, if you have like these very large uh, sporting events, uh, something at A&T Stadium or Texas Motor Speedway. Um, those are considered what we call soft targets. They have a very high profile 
on interest for a terrorist to release something, let's say maybe Bexillus and Thracis, to aerosolize it and to release it. But because of the concern at the time after 9-11 uh, was for actually begin looking at ways that we could do the surveillance. And so we actually had units in BioWatch that were created with the specific capacity of monitoring uh, any release of what we call the, those types of unique biopathogens. And then uh, on top of that, if something was, we re would receive an alert, uh, we would work very closely right here in, in Dallas. We worked uh, with the FBI, uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction Division. Uh, we worked with Department of Homeland Security and a lot of law enforcement in Texas uh, in order to establish what we call the Sentinel Labs. The Sentinel Labs were a national network uh, that were tasked with the biosurveillance of watching for any of these type of pathogens that could be deployed. So that was where I began my work uh, in the bioterrorism sector. That was a great explanation. And you know, it's, it's a really interesting thing now, because here we sit in 2023, and I would say most Americans are at least suspicious about what happened with COVID. How do we get here where we are in 2023 that we went through the pandemic or pandemic and that we emerged from it with a little less freedom and we emerged with it uh, from it recognizing how really vulnerable populations can be if something is actually released. So you, you, you uh, came into this whole, uh, the exposure to the issue of COVID-19 with, with a very unique background, a, a knowledgeable background. Back to your first thing, uh, you, when you're working epidemiology, you're just then just tracking naturally occurring diseases, correct? Is that's that what correct. Okay, but then to get involved with the whole HHS project, I, I think that's an amazing experience. You mentioned before we started that you had set up a, prior to COVID, long before that came along, set up a uh, study or, or a, what should I call it, an exercise um, at the airport where you're looking at what would you do if a plane came in and was filled with people who've been exposed to something? Is that correct? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that just yeah, before we get dive into the... Yeah, the, the exercises <clears throat> in any realm of emergency management, uh, whether it's fire or law enforcement, and uh, it's also uh, with us in bioterrorism, bioterrorism surveillance, uh, we would do these exercises. What an exercise typically would do, uh, you would exercise your preparedness capacity, your capabilities. And exercises were done on a different a uh, couple of venues. One would be uh, you could do a tabletop exercise where you bring people, your subject matter experts from law enforcement, from FBI, Homeland Security to the table, and uh, or you actually do what we call a full-scale exercise where you bring all the players in, the actors per se, and they all have this unique common denominator. They, they work with what we call a a fictional narrative. In other words, it's something on a worst case scenario. Let's say if you're in fire department, <clears throat> you know, you, you may work with uh, overturned, uh, uh, you know, rail tank, tank cars uh, that release some sort of uh, gas or some sort of chemical. And so the exercise will deal with injects. How can we contain that and the, the end goal of that, these exercises, is to produce planning. That's always the end goal because we have what we call, uh, based on a model uh, from Homeland Security, they call it Homeland Security Exercise Evaluation Protocols, or HC. And based on those protocols, we would conduct these exercises dealing with biological pathogens very early on and how we were going to respond to them, how were we going to mitigate uh, the crisis. So uh, any of those scenarios would deal, they would write a playbook. And the playbook was called the Situation Manual. And it was like a script. It was like following a script for a movie or a, uh, a TV episode. And you follow the script and you have all the actors that are involved, law enforcement agencies. We work with a lot of different response agencies in North Texas. And very early on in 2013, 
uh, we, be, we were tasked with doing some of the very first global pandemic response exercises. These were very large. And I saw funding coming across for these exercises from the CDC, World Health Organization. Uh, but not only that, but we began also seeing uh, John Hopkins University School of Public Health, uh, the Bill Gates Foundation, and millions of dollars of funding were going in to, uh, for us to conduct these exercises at various levels. They would be conducted federal level, uh, state, local county, municipal levels. And so as early as 2013, we were asked to facilitate these exercises. They were very large exercises. Uh, one of the very first that we did was in the Joint Emergency Operations Center in downtown Fort Worth. Very state-of-the-art operations center there. And uh, so we had representatives that we were brought in to the exercise virtually, representatives from CDC, from John Hopkins, uh, from the Gates Foundation, that were involved with this whole rollout. So we had a situation manual, and here it was. Here's the, here's the index for this exercise, Debbie. First of all, there is a novel virus that originates from China. Hmm. Interesting. Now, a lot of the attention was being given to, you know, of course, you know, we had SARS that we were dealing with, uh, avian influenza. And uh, so, but it was interesting, they all started with this uh, particular focus of an Asian novel virus. And then from there, how are we going to mitigate the effects of that virus? So the whole situation manual from the very beginning, following the playbook, listed things like isolation and quarantine protocols, uh, lockdowns. Uh, we even taught, we even, matter of fact, brought National Guard representatives in and talked about locking down entire cities. And uh, as crazy as it sounded, this is like, this is 2013 that this is happening. And not only that, but we had public information officers, Debbie, that were assigned to that exercise and their job was to provide oversight to make certain that they deal with any misinformation in the media by releasing press statements. I mean, this is back to 2013 that this is happening. So I remember sitting in some of the largest, this large exercise, Joint Operations Center. A colleague of mine leans over to me and he says, you know, th this is something that would happen in a third world country. I mean, they, they don't realize, this, this is the United States of America. This would never happen here. And I kind of laughed at the time. I said, yeah, but we're getting all this funding, millions of dollars of funding to do these exercises and conduct them and then write plans for them. So we're just playing along. Little did I know that that would be the beginning of what we call this pandemic. And from there, the exercises became more meticulously and technically detailed and their aspects of approach. Um, one of the very large ones that I recall was right here at the DFW airport. We were, this exercise at Terminal D, we took a 747 on the tarmac and we worked with isolating. It came from China. We isolated the 747 and uh, we went through the whole protocols. We had, we had uh, air marshals there. Uh, we had CDC liaisons. Uh, quarantine station officers. It was a huge exercise that we were doing, but at the time we were all practicing about these things like lockdown, how we're going to this containment and government control and government information. Okay, so you already had a dry run before we even got around to the real uh, to the real thing of, tw of 2020 and, and the entire um, the real um, pandemic or pandemic. I do so. At the time, I guess it fit with your kind of job and the role you were in. It seemed it made a little bit of sense, I guess. But looking back, it just seems kind of how much you wonder how much people knew uh, but was coming. Let me just jump in, though, about what happened with, with COVID. 
as we were talking about before we um, went live today, I think for most people, especially when COVID first came along, it was at the last year of Trump's term, or Trump's first term um, in 2020. And for the first, whatever it was, a couple of months, people thought, well, you know, this is kind of scary. We don't know what's going on. We just followed instructions. But many people, especially liberty-minded Americans, became suspicious fairly early on to the level of shutdown, level of lockdown, uh, level of control over your life. And, and uh, you talk a little bit about, uh, in your book, I'm going to jump around topics, but you talk a little bit in your book about the idea that public health, which you had uh, been working in, there's a socialist mindset at the core of public health thinking that is kind of, uh, number one, it recognizes health or fear of death, the fear of a health crisis is a great opportunity to seize power, and that the socialistic mindset about life and freedom permeates public health even before COVID and permeates how the Bill and Linda, uh, their Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation thinks of their role. Talk a little bit about that, just about how the socialist mindset has already had already permeated really public health before this came along. Oh, yes. Uh, very early in my career in epidemiology, uh, we began seeing programs, they were called uh, things like social equity, public health. Uh, whenever you hear the word equity, okay, it, it happens to be, it's just a buzz term for socialized uh, constructs of public health or, or medicine or vaccines. And uh, very early on, we, we, we started to sing, you know, it, it's, and I have to say this, Debbie, it's great if public health stays in their lane to do things like we need for restaurant inspections or, or actually sample the quality of our water. But when they begin getting into areas where they start dictating uh, what we need to do, like they're the ones that make the decisions on what's best for our health, what's best for our lifestyle, what's best for our, our medical care, our health care even, uh, I begin seeing a shift very early on in public health, large, uh, whether it might be county health departments or municipal city health departments or state, uh, because they're all receiving their mandates from the health and human services, from the federal bureaucracy. And there was a really a move toward this idea of creating more of the control. And here, even in the state of Texas, uh, the Health and Human Services Codes. There were things in law that were being codified, Debbie, for public health to give public health authorities and medical directors of public health departments to give them the power to enact uh, things like isolation and quarantine lockdowns very early on. As a matter of fact, it was kind of interesting. Uh, I, I recall going to uh, these uh, in Austin, we were actually doing this training in public health law, and we have representatives from the CDC. They were talking about things like, okay, this is what we really need to do. We need to look at the Health and Human Services Code. We need to see how we can uh, enhance our authority in order to begin give, issuing restrictions for lockdowns. You know, something I, I mentioned before we started today, I've always had a streak. I love individual liberty. I love the idea of America and the promise of individual liberty. And I had that reaction years ago to public health when they would start talking about, well, you know, maybe we should direct, you know, not how much sugar is in your soda or what kind of things you should be allowed to eat or drink. And just the, uh, the underlying assumption was we know better than you and you don't have any right to control your own life and your own health. And I, that mindset has grown tremendously in the public health arena and, and other arenas in America as the COVID pandemic came along and, and caused fear. I want to jump in though and talk a little bit about, because what you tried to do in your book, um, it, which you wrote out, and actually I want to commend you, it's very readable. I mean, some things, it's not too, I, I'm sure you could, could have written a more deeply epidemiologically descriptive book and then well, wouldn't have understood it, but I appreciate the way you wrote it. But you begin talking about in your book, you're say, basically saying you're building a scenario that the virus was deliberately weaponized. Whether or not it was released on purpose or accidentally, the virus itself was deliberately weaponized um, and eventually, to, you know, to cause harm and, and led to 
what we saw, the expanded loss of our freedom in America. We saw the growth of the global reset. But I want to talk about the virus itself appearing to be weaponized. You focus on gain-of-function research, which all of us learned a term we'd never heard before. If you can describe, if you would, what does this gain-of-function research mean and what they did to this virus based on your looking at it and what you present in this book, what did they do to this virus? Gain-of-function research seeks to take the naturally occurring properties of any virus and to enhance them in order to make them maybe have a greater yield for transmission, uh, even making them more lethal, more deadly. Uh, so if you begin looking at the, uh, the early, what I call the alpha-beta coronaviruses as such, that were used in the gain-of-function research. Um, the, the idea was to take the properties of those viruses and we sort of play Frankenstein in the lab with them. Right. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's the potential for them to, to be bad enough as they are, but gain-of-function research actually seeks to uh, take that virus and move it to a, uh, a point or capacity where it can cause even greater damage on the human population. Part of what I understood you were saying was that the gain-of-function research, they ended up, the spike protein in this virus is more likely to harm human tissue in the lungs, more likely to be effective in invading the lungs and spreading itself in the body. Is that not a medical person, but is that in the ballpark of correct? Y yes, it is. As a matter of fact, individuals like Dr. Stephen Quay, who uh, yeah. in his research, he looked at the, he did what was called a Bayesian analysis. Uh, he took the early, the early construct of the SARS coronavirus and then also compared it to what we later had in the initial 200 cases that we know of uh, in Wuhan at ground zero, uh, took that and ran them through a supercomputer. When he did his analysis, an amazing, amazing research uh, that he did, but it, it actually revealed that the properties of the spike protein component were actually enhanced to the aspect. All of us are familiar with the, what the coronavirus looks like. We were bombarded with that in media nearly every day, but that spike, uh, what we call the corona, looking like a crown, uh, was able to latch itself on the uh, membranes of the lungs. And, and it had actually a tenacity for holding power and uh, for causing infection. Yeah, and so the, the, the gain of function caused this to be more harmful to humans as, as they contracted and spread around COVID. So at least we're all conceding, or I assume we're agreeing, this was not a naturally occurring virus. This is created in a lab. That feel, you feel confident about it's created in a lab. And whether it leaked out or was released, uh, don't have absolute proof yet, but it, it was released. We, we are now we face it around the world. And, but you also wrote a bunch of indicia in your book, which I, it was a really good summary um, about why it's fair to conclude that the uh, SARS-CoV-2 was developed as a weapon of mass destruction. Partly what you do in your, your list and, you know, I wrote a book, and when people start reading my book, I think, oh, shoot, I don't remember what I said. So it's okay if you remember. I'll just tell you. I have a lengthy list here of the things you said, but there were uh, 13 points you made that for anyone doubting that this was intended to be a harmful virus, uh, this is a wonderful list. I mean, you talk about the Chinese military um, and the People's Liberation Army being directly involved with the Wuhan, uh, Wuhan lab. Yeah, so you have to really look at the chief player behind this. Yep. And when you begin dealing with a look at ground zero, that level four lab in Wuhan, uh, and you begin asking questions like, okay, who's overseeing this lab? Because supposedly that lab was funded through World Health Organization. It was constructed in uh, partnership with France to actually, as a humanitarian development of vaccines and cures for deadly viruses. So, but who is over the lab? We began looking at the communist China. Uh, 
the individual that was assigned to provide oversight uh, for the lab was General Shen Wei, who happens to be a leading bioweapons expert in China, and they are a member of the People's Liberation Army. Now, we know that from uh, what PLA doctrine uh, is an unconventional warfare, we know that they had ambitions for decades for developing a biological weapon that you could take out entire armies. You could actually conquer nations right. without firing a single shot. Yeah, I mean, the Chinese have been, uh, you mentioned, I think you mentioned in your book, the book Unrestricted Warfare, yes. um, which I've talked about endlessly on the show, but the notion that China intends to be the world's single superpower, they intend to take America down, and among the ways they can do that is simply without firing a shot, dropping a bomb, it's just weakening the American population in a variety of ways, including things like this. So you, but I'm glad you mentioned they have a long, China long-standing interest in research and development of biological weapons of mass destruction since the early days of mass. I mean, I mean, decades ongoing, um, and obviously ruthless military regime there. I, I love that you pull these points out because they all point to the notion that the effort to excuse the release of the virus or the, the, the death and destruction and harm it caused, um, that the uh, excuse cannot be viable that says it was either, you know, it came from bats in a cave or some crazy thing. It was developed by China. But let's talk about America's role. I'm um, quickly say for our radio listeners, you're going to go off to a break at 30 minutes past the hour. Do not go away. It'll be right here. Come back. This is America Can We Talk, Debbie George Addis. You can find the entire interview on our website at americacanwetalk.org. So let's turn back to what Fauci did. So Dr. Fauci, um, who has been an American in government, I think it's like 100 years. I mean, it's a really long time. But he, you know, he, was, he was in charge uh, of a lot of what occurred. And he apparently misled Congress in claiming that there was no role of American tax dollars going to the Wuhan lab, but there was. And, and there was now evidence that he was aware of the money and it was being used for gain-of-function research. So how much responsibility does Fauci or the American government have for the development of this virus? Fauci was involved 100% with this, even as he aggressively maintained his innocence. He had, they say, very early on, said he had nothing to do with gain-of-function research. Uh, and, but we know that from email disclosures that came out uh, with uh, the that Fauci was addressing uh, the chief researcher of the Wuhan lab. Yep. Uh, and not only that, but also the uh, NIH uh, director. Uh, and in that, they, we know that they had actually collaborated on a number of meetings uh, for gain of function. And those emails came to full disclosure as a result. So Fauci was involved. Uh, very early on in the, from the beginning, I'd say early as 2013, if not earlier uh, with that, when some of the initial gain-of-function research was being conducted. And we, we do know that Fauci and Francis Collins played a key role in reinstating funding for gain-of-function research. After even the Obama administration stopped it for a while. Exactly. Was, it was yeah. actually put on temporary pause still then. Yeah, so they allowed it to happen over in China because then it's not in violation of what whatever Obama's rule was. So this is a so we know Fauci, American tax dollars going over to Wuhan, developing gain of function. Virus becomes very deadly. Virus gets out somehow, it's killing millions of people. I gotta tell you one aside to this. I, I want to go to a lot more things, but I had a conversation yesterday with someone on uh, my show, a, a China kind of a national security expert. And we were talking about all this attention, all this information that came to America from the Biden laptop about Hunter Biden and the money flowing uh, right to the Biden family. And the problem we were talking about is who in our government, in the DOJ, FBI, or any other federal agency is going to investigate? And the answer is none, no one. Mm. It's just going to sit there because we, they're not motivated to look into it. So I had the same thought about this. When you realize Fauci was actually involved and money flowing from our country, who's going to investigate in America? Who is the CDC, the FDA, the um, you know any of the other alphabet agencies you can list? Is anyone going to look into this to say what the heck are we doing? 
And who's responsible for the danger caused by our actions? Is there anyone investigating this to your knowledge? Right. You know, at this point, Debbie, uh, you know, we've heard a lot about the hearings that have gone on. Thank goodness for Senator Rand Paul and others that have uh, basically the, these hearings to call into question what was going on with the gain-of-function research in relationship to the Wuhan lab. My hope is that it's, it's a little more than a what we call a dog-and-pony show uh, for political uh, uh, theater. Um, now, I do know that uh, aside from that, there are projects that are going on to look at the litigation of gain-of-function research. Uh, Dr. Malone, just a week or so ago, was involved with a group of um, uh, attorneys, those in law, uh, looking at ways that they can actually, how can we litigate this? I mean, it's enough that we have problems with vaccine injury, vaccine deaths, and all the horrendous stuff that took place in hospitals uh, following uh, this, this protocol uh, that was absolutely crazy. So the litigation, uh, there's now there are actually attempts being made at saying, how can we go after the gain-of-function researchers? Now, that's going to be a tough act to, to, to pull, but I, I, I have hope. I do have some hope that we will see of some of those efforts come to fruition. So this would be Dr. Malone looking at civil litigation yes. against some entities or individuals in the federal government because of the funding of gain of function. Is yes. that right? Yes. Okay. That would be great. I mean, it's really an interesting thing. I mean, you, I mean I will t I've said this many times over the last few years. For most of my life, I assumed the federal government, and I think most Americans did, the federal government is more or less on the side of law and order, truth and justice, the American way, and if something really bad is happening, we're going to get we're going to get after the people and i think there has been as we see the massive death and injury coming from the vaccines the various data the and we're not going to go into vaccines on this show we're going to be talking about the virus and its release but all of that death and destruction and really the reaction of the fda cdc every federal agency has been to turn a blind eye or to say no you're incorrect or to just simply not take accountability which is really causing more americans on this issue, as with many others, to question what in the world's going on with our government. But anyway, I want to, um, and that's not really a question, that's on my short soapbox speech for this show. Um, <laughs> but I do, I, I, I want, I love the American people standing up. I love if Dr. Malone's going to be able to uncover some accountability. Okay, so let's just turn to what happened, how America responded, because your book really gets at this idea of the global, you call it the global reset, or the, and people use the term great reset, was World Economic Forum, driven by the socialist agenda to basically say, we don't really need all these pesky little sovereign nations who believe in their individual rights and identity and sovereignty. So first in America, I wanna talk about the loss of rights um, when COVID came along, how quickly so many agencies from Washington down to state legislatures to county governments, they just seem to surrender and say, well, we have a big problem, so everybody just give up your freedom. And you talk about that a lot in your book. And so I'd love to have you just talk about, is this a big change in how much power these social, these um, health agencies have in taking away freedom in America? Yes. And they were weaponized, Debbie, yes. uh, from very early on. As I, I mentioned, I saw years ago my, uh, when I was working with public health agencies how they could codify law in order to go after uh, our rights, our, our liberties, and uh, to basically be used against us, the American people. And uh, so we began, we began seeing that in public health itself, the health and human services, uh, there was this trend uh, to moving toward uh, this ridiculous, I call it ridiculousness of, uh, th th they would criticize us for being anti-scientific, but yet right. they could maintain very easily, well, not just one mask, but wear two masks or even three masks. While you're at uh, home by yourself. Th then when we first were, uh, when, when the big box stores lit us in, uh, to do our shopping, uh, we would come in through the door and we would see these arrows on the floor in a circle that said six feet. 
and uh, we had to distance ourselves six feet. So there were all these control factors that didn't have the science to back them up, and they were a farce, but yet it was a control factor. And they implemented it very thoroughly. And there was an element of fear in this. They utilized fear factor, Debbie, more than, I, I'd say, appeal to anything rather than appealing to science. Because very early on, I, I look, my work in epidemiology, I knew even with the mask, I, I was uh, certified here in the state of Texas to do uh, training for level four personal protective equipment and N95 respirators and all those things. So when they were talking about this little flimsy mask, I said, this, this is absolutely ridiculous. But yep. yet, the American people, they bought it. Uh, it was a way of putting a reign of control, and they used it very efficiently. They did, and you know what's the most, among the most interesting things is that it wasn't just, it wasn't just them, the control of the American people, but the I don't even know, the medical biopharmaceutical complex, whatever you want to call it, in Washington, the, the federal agencies and all that, they really ended up silencing and punishing doctors, medical health professionals, nurses, people who were trying to say, hey, there's a really great treatment here. You should try ivermectin. You should try inhaled budesonide. These things that these doctors who actually practice medicine were, were saying are effective, and yet this uh, this... I don't know, control factor, this fear, this infusion of fear, it, it got to the point that doctors were silenced and wouldn't even say what they knew was true, and the ones who did speak up got punished. Have you ever seen anything like this in your experience, everything you've done? I never have, Debbie, and, and the amazing thing about it was uh, this attack on uh, medical physicians, that yes. they were realizing that, hey, the repurposed medications, they work, and yet, the big pharma is railroading us uh, on the vaccine uh, and people are dying. There is a greater, I remember at a meeting in Orlando, Dr. Peter McCullough listening to some stats that he was revealing. He was talking about individuals that were in hospitals that were being treated by the, the typical COVID treatment protocol regimen. Uh, there was a higher morbidity rate. Those people were dying. It was almost like being, once you were intubated, it was almost like a death sentence. And uh, so, but yet they galvanized their opinion to the point where no other view for repurposed medication, like you mentioned the ivermectin, uh, which was awesome because I, I had uh, my bout about a year ago, I, I call it the woo flu. Uh, I had yeah. my bout of that, and the ivermectin, and that regimen, uh, the, the frontline alliance that Dr. McCullough prescribes, we followed it to the T. And they're incredible. They're amazing. But yet, they still silence medical professionals for even thinking, even, even uh, prescribing that as a course of action. But it's not only the doctors who are silenced, Debbie, it's also researchers, uh, Dr. Stephen Quay. Uh, and one thing about research uh, scientists is this, uh, that they are dependent upon getting the research published because that is the bread and butter. That's how they get their research funded. And when you begin discrediting those researchers, okay, that means streams of funding are going to be cut off. So you had individuals with Dr. Stephen Quay that they said, we're not going to publish this. This is not fitting the mainstream narrative. So they were ostracized. They were criticized. They were ridiculed. And from the very beginning, we began seeing this, uh, this, this uh, what was taking place, the silencing of our physicians, silencing of our doctors who were speaking the truth. It was the most astonishing thing. It, censorship, it's, it's mass tyranny. It's just on the people and on the doctors, which leads you to the question, why? Why in this outbreak, when we've had, we have had, this, maybe this is the first pandemic of major proportion in the lifetime of most people right now, um, but it's certainly not the only pandemic in history. It's not the only mass outbreak, and we did have we had other ones in, in our in recent lifetime. But the entire 
medical industry, the biopharmaceutical industry, the uh, organizations in Washington, the federal government, the bureaucracies, uh, you know, I, I whip them off so quickly, but CDC and FDA and NIH, they all, it's, it's like they got in lockstep. And I've not seen them, and I've asked other doctors on my show, have you ever seen them behave this way? And the answer is always no, it's never happened. So I don't know if fear played a part in a lot of them just saying, okay, whatever everyone else seems to be saying this, so I guess I'll go along, or there's even a darker agenda than just, than just that. So I want to turn to your, you wrote in your book about um, this, the rise of the thinking of the, the kind of great reset, World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, whether or not the, the virus was released on purpose or by mistake, the reality was it was deadly, it was created in a lab, and it was brutally spread protection of the people who could have had access to repurposed medications and gotten through the Wu flu with a, with a minor problem ended up in very serious conditions. And Fauci is pushing that remdesivir protocol, which is killing yes. people. And I had a doctor on my show who was calling, saying they call it run, death is near. That's what the remdesivir was, because mm -hmm. it was just, it was horrible. Mm -hmm. And so what, what is the, what's the reason here? What is the uh, goal? And so I want to get around to your point about this, at the very least, enabled the great reset, the global reset crowd to have more appeal and power and maybe even some of them are, are behind it, are allowing this to be an intentional pandemic, which is what I think it is. You don't have to agree, but I think it is intentionally released and long-term planned. I actually get your reaction to that. Is this an intentional long-term plan destruction or not sure? I, I, I take it as, as a long-term plan. Uh, you used the word a little while ago. I'm going to capitalize on that. You, you used the word lockstep. All these global yes. elites and these three-letter agencies are in lockstep. Do you know actually an exercise, an international exercise done, was funded by the Rockefeller Administration, Rockefeller Foundation, excuse me. It was called Lockstep. And it was about the goal of exercising government control, not only in the United States of America, but globally. So if you begin looking at fear that's being used as a common element to incite control. Uh, and all of these things, these global elites, there's, we move up to what I call the 20,000-foot view, uh, looking down on not only the three-letter agencies, but their collaborative networks. And we have to start looking at individuals like Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, and go there from the plan because he wrote the book uh, on the he wrote a book called the global reset right which focused on the covid 19 pandemic and and very early on the preface of his book he talks about we can imagine a new world that emerges with this pandemic and this pandemic has brought to us the opportunities right. in order to create this new world order on top of that, uh, Klaus Schwab wrote previously, he's looking, he, he's, you know, he's a socialist or a communist. He, looks, he wants a new world order. Previous to COVID coming along, he wrote extensively about the use of the climate change alarmism agenda to be another excuse or pathway to the consolidation of power in the World Economic Forum, the abandonment of the power of sovereign individual nations to govern their own nations. It was creation, it's the same kind of thing creating fear, creating uh, panic, and people feel like I, they can't individually deal with it, so they need someone or something to take care of them because they're panicked the world's going to boil over or whatever it is with their climate change stories of this week. But he saw that as, as, as a vehicle to power too, climate change and, and now the, um, the uh, COVID-19. So on this subject of uh, America's, and actually this is a great thought for you or a question for you, so right now what's happening with the World Health Organization is there's an effort and the Biden administration is complicit and enabling and encouraging this idea that we should as Americans and every other country as well, surrender to the sovereignty of the World Health Organization to set healthcare policy related to pandemics. Give World Health Organization the authority to declare when a pandemic exists, are we at a pandemic phase? What has to be done in response to it? what nations must do in terms of demands and requirements. And, 
And to me, I mean, this is, you might as well just give up America as a sovereign nation. And yet the Biden administration, they're not only supportive or, or agreeable, they're, they're enabling, they're trying to make it happen. So again, in your history, all your work in the, in the field of epidemiology and bioterrorism, have you ever seen this idea floated or supported that America can't handle things like this and we really just have to give all the power to something like the World Health Organization? Yes, the, the, the international exercises that were conducted through World Health Organization just a few months prior to the COVID pandemic focused on the United Nations, World Health Organization, uh, exercising these international protocols for what they called uh, pandemic outbreak containment. And uh, so with that, we saw this move toward uh, a call for nations to relinquish national sovereignty uh, very early on. Klaus Schwab, he, he is the architect of what's called the Fourth Industrial Revolution, where he talks about things like artificial intelligence and a whole host of things. But he also is very much interconnected with the United Nations. Well, we know United yeah. Nations, uh, the 2030 sustainability uh, goals. Uh, they do list the, the, uh, the environmental uh, factor, the global warming, all of that. But down the list of these sustainability goals, there's also this, they call it a global health forum, a global health governance, where with which we will be able to address things like pandemics. Well, Debbie, if we do give up our sovereignty as a nation, which this present administration, they want to do very much. They want the United Nations 2030 sustainability. They want all of that. They know if we relinquish that, we relinquish those rights to an international global power, they, we basically authorize and empower them to come in to us as American people say, look, we know uh, we're the ones who are calling the shots on this is what we call a pandemic and this is how you're going to respond to it. And I see something even far worse, far greater danger uh, on the horizon with that. Could not agree more, including notions that they say the only answer is this new vaccine and then the booster. It's a whole vaccine regimen, they could say, that simply must be done. And, you know, I'm... I'm your book touches on many times the idea of socialist thought and you go through a lot of, I mean, there's so much, it's a wealth of information. You talk a lot about the history of China and how their thinking went along and their loss of freedom in Lenin and Marx. I, I mean, I, I love that you've tied these topics together so well in this book. The Wuhan, again, for our listeners, we're, we're speaking, uh, we are interviewing in studio, Mark Fulmer, the author of The Wuhan Incident, Bioweapons and the Emerging Global Reset. I love that you're connecting the COVID, which seemed to come along out of nowhere, and we thought we'd just quick find some remedy and move on to how it's enabled this, this long-standing effort of World Health Organization, uh, excuse me, long-standing effort of the global mindset, whether it's UN 2030 or others, to say panic time, time to give up your, your uh, liberty. So, I, you know, I, I ask this question to people, and I know it's unfair. Okay, before I say that, so there's a hat, there's a microphone in the audience, and so we're gonna, I'm gonna do one last question here, and then you all have the opportunity to ask a question. We kind of like you to stand up and stand in the middle and, and hold it right up by your mouth because it has to get picked up on the microphone. And I love your questions. So my, my okay, I have three last questions, but I'm gonna do one. So, <laughs> but in case you don't have any, but I mean, how do we stop? I, I asked this yesterday of this amazing former CIA China expert guy. How do we stop this loss of, of America this, in the case of, of China taking over, wanting to take over America? How do we, who is going to stand up in America? Who is going to stand up? Who can stand up in America to stop this surrender of our sovereignty to World Health Organization under the guise of COVID or whatever the next, you know, orchestrated pandemic is. How do we get our healthcare uh, sovereignty back? I, I addressed that, Debbie, in the last chapter of my book titled, Where Do We Go From Here? Yep. A lot of individuals that have read my book, their thought is, okay, there's gotta be uh, a game plan for going after the deep state in Washington. My answer is actually 
backwards trace from that. I recommend that we need to start at our local level, at our community, grassroots level. You know, we would love to flush out George Soros and the funding that's coming in, the, the billions of dollars of funding that's coming in uh, with these leftist progressive judges, everything else is happening. But you know what? We may not be able to address that. So starting in our own backyard, there are things that we can do effectively and do them well, starting with our own local health departments. And I, I say this, that every, every health department has been weaponized to an extent. So I mentioned very early on, it'd be great if health departments stuck with things like restaurant inspections and, and water safety and some of those things. But when they start getting into the control lane, limiting our freedoms, that's where we need to start. Let's take Dallas County uh, here where the studio is. Uh, in, in Dallas, you have a county health department. Who holds the reign over that health department in addition to the public health authority? It's the county commissioners. Right. It's the county judge. So after I, shortly after I'd written this book, uh, in the, where I live at in Tarrant County in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, I found out an individual, a good friend of mine, was running for judge, county judge. And mm -hmm. I had opportunity to meet with him in detail. And I said, look, the commissioner's court and the judge they were the first to sign off and come in agreement with lockdowns, closures, mask mandates, this whole ball of wax. And so we talked about where things need to be really restructured uh, there and starting even at the county level and city level. So uh, we, got, we got this individual elected. So we started this plan of limiting and the very first thing that he did very first or second week uh, in office, this new judge signed orders that basically limited those powers, those executive powers that were signed years ago on mandates and control mechanisms. So it has to start, Debbie, within our own backyard, our own county, maybe going to a county commissioner course. Because I'm telling you, one of the things that that flies under the radar most often is millions of dollars of funding yep. from vaccine, big pharma, CDC, into our local health departments that are weaponized against us. And that's where we as citizens can be proactive uh, in voting for commissioners, uh, dealing with the, the judges court, dealing with those commissioners agenda. So I say start local and build from there. Love that. Okay, my very fine friends in the audience, we'd love to have your questions. There's a microphone right there. And, oh, good, we have a question. A young man in the back. Hello, thank you for your courage and for standing up and speaking the truth when it's so rare today. Um, you briefly talked about future possible threats. And our former uh, head of the CDC, Robert Redfield, and both Bill Gates, have all both have made comments about their concern about future pandemics or bioterrorism. Um, they call it another pandemic, but it seems like it, based upon recent history, we realize that it's more than that. I'd like for you to speak more to that. And also, would you work with local groups here in Texas? Because there are several in the audience that work with uh, grassroots efforts to bring awareness. Thank yes. you. Excellent question. Uh, you know, here's the thing. I always uh, point back to uh, during the, uh, after the State of the Union and uh, after the Vice President was making this speech to the American people, and it regarded about, she was talking about how we need to be better prepared, okay, she was talking about COVID pandemic, how we need to be better prepared for the next pandemic. Okay, so that should tell you right there, <laughs> there's, something, there's something in the construct or the planning. Yes, biopathogens are always going to be out there. And there's always going to be something that public health, from a public health point of view, they're going to look for a crisis opportunity to take that, some sort of outbreak, some sort of disease pathogen, 
and to instill fear and gain control. So we need to be a little wiser from this pandemic. There, and to answer your other question, uh, what can we do in the grassroots level? There are organizations that are doing a great job that are working, I'm already involved with work in, uh, in Tarrant County. Uh, one is the uh, CCDF, County Citizens Defending Freedom. It's an organization, they have a chapter here in Dallas, but they're going right after uh, commissioners, uh, county judge, uh, those that would empower local health departments. I would say get involved with some of those meetings uh, at the grassroots level, because that's where we really need to, to, to rein in this control. That's a great answer. A quick, yeah, she has a question. Go ahead. I'm going to quick, uh, chime in two quick things. One is I want to commend you in your book. You gave such great credit to so many people who've been brave. You list them by name. You tell them how. I mean, it's a really good praise of people who were brave. And I, I mean, to give them credit is a wonderful thing. And on the subject of future pandemics, Anthony Fauci wrote something like 2001, I think it was, where he talked about we are entering the era of pandemics. And he talked about, I mean, he's laying the ground, we're gonna have a lot of them, better just start submitting. And he says, due to climate change, don't even get me started. Next question. <laughs> I have a million questions for you. Thank you so much. But you know, it's just so hard for me to get my arms around how this hit every corner of the world pretty much at the same time. You know, I know Columbus went back to Spain, and I think it was, and syphilis spread like wildfire right after that. So I guess it is possible. But can you tell me, you know, you got any ideas on the release? I mean, I know we have gain of function as one, and so other. Then the other thing I was going to ask you about, a little off subject maybe, but can you make any comment on chemtrails? Yeah, well, um, I'm not an expert in chemtrails, but let me say this. I wouldn't put it past the government authorities. Uh, anything that, you know, that is of suspicion, you know, what we used to call conspiracy theories years ago. Now I say, you know what? That's actually a conspiracy theory is more, I use the words of Dan Bongino saying, hey, we're running out of conspiracy theories because they're all coming true. Yeah, <laughs> need some new ones, yeah. So when you mentioned that, I'd like to address another aspect of your uh, question there about the, when we, we, we look at, uh, you know, this, how, uh, again, can we uh, deal with the, uh, this whole government control thing and how we can actually, uh, you, you begin looking at ways that our, our freedom, our individual freedoms were, were taken away. And many of the researchers and scientists that we already talked about that they were silenced for speaking the truth. That's why it's so important for us to continue speaking the truth, being brave about this, stepping forward. And with that, you know, we must, we must have the idea and the mentality that the truth is something that can never be suppressed. And we've learned our lessons from the COVID pandemic, how important that is. Go ahead, sir. Looking back over your last 10 years of your career, with hindsight, when would have been the appropriate time to have stepped forward as a whistleblower? You know, that's a great question. And I'm going to be very honest with you. Uh, back when I was doing those large scale exercises as early as 2013, uh, I was a young epidemiologist who was just drafted into bioterrorism surveillance. And I, I didn't connect the dots. I really didn't. And it wasn't until really a couple of years before the COVID pandemic, I began seeing things that were happening so fast, so quickly, that I began questioning. I began asking questions to my superiors about that. I was really told to, you know, shut up and, and, and put up. We've got basically this. And then the day came forward long before COVID vaccine uh, was, was even on the horizon, we actually were, involved, were asked to be involved with the logistical planning of the COVID vaccine deployment very early on. Now, they didn't use the term COVID vaccine, but they said, hey, uh, we want your planning unit. And we, we had 
our planning unit in biotourism, uh, we were involved with projects like Strategic National Stockpile in the event that if there's a Category A agent uh, the outbreak uh, that's used or weaponized, uh, then we would look to mitigate that. They wanted us, we were beginning, we were being asked just even a couple of years before the pandemic to take our strategic national stockpile planning and to apply it to vaccine deployment. I, I then began looking at this doesn't look right. And then just within months before the rollouts of the first vaccine, uh, we were asked to contribute planning to what they call large mass prophylaxis site, mass vaccination sites, looking at Texas Motor Speedway, looking at AT Stadium. Uh, and then we were called in the meetings and conference calls uh, where we were to work with FEMA. Uh, and it's kind of interesting, the Federal Emergency Management uh, you know, Agency is involved with natural disasters. Why would they be called in to uh, for vaccine deployment. Well, it was very early in the planning. I began seeing that something's not adding up here and millions of dollars were going into North Texas to develop uh, these large uh, vaccine uh, supply repositories uh, in my area, 14,000 square foot warehouse where we were getting shipments of everything from uh, syringes, uh, to uh, biocontainers, you name it. Uh, that we, we began saying the money was rolling forward uh, for these projects way before COVID vaccine. And I began asking questions about this. And like I said, that was where I was told by my superiors, okay, you know what? You, you, know, you, you just do the project. You do the planning for us. You do the implementation. And I got to the point where I, I said, this is no longer uh, fun anymore, and I decided to put an early retirement. Wow. Hey, we have one more quick question. Or, go ahead, sir. Yeah, Mark, I wanted to ask you about the money flow, you know, cooey bono, who profits. Number one uh, aspect of that is, what do you know about pharmaceutical company monies going into these different government organizations or advisory committees? And number two, how about retired pharmaceutical executives getting on these boards that, that can affect and impact what uh, CDC, NIH, all these people, what they do and the, the policies that they promulgate? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one of the things we begin when we look at um, this uh, this entire approach to uh, how we can um, rein in uh, this. I like your idea about using the retired executives and on this board, but as long as they don't, as long as they have full disclosure of, uh, you know, that they have vetted interest in that, we'd have to be very careful. Uh, but the, the other thing is to uh, look at the um, and what's the first part of your question? I'm, I'm sorry. It related to money. Oh, the money. 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 Yeah. Companies uh, into government advisory yes. Yes. Very good question. Uh, follow the money, as I have always said. Uh, public health departments were receiving millions of dollars from the CDC and NIH and Big Pharma for pushing vaccine operations. And I, I saw lots of funding dollars coming here in North Texas from the big pharmaceutical industry uh, that were used in the planning, they were used in hiring staff, uh, everything to support the vaccine logistics I was just talking about a little while ago. Big Pharma was involved in writing the checks and guess what? Public health directors, uh, public health authorities, they were really good about accepting those checks in order to do their bidding. In other words, if they followed the, what they were being asked to do, they would get the funding. And the same is true. Almost any health department here in North Texas, I can say, have taken those grant dollars and they've come from those sources like Big Pharma, as you mentioned. 
Folks, we are past our time, which uh, happens almost every week. I'm, I'm looking on the hallway. Is someone waiting for the studio? I want to thank everyone for coming. I love having this Thursday show. It's just, I mean, it's just a very special day every week. So thank you, everyone, for coming. And Mark Fulmer, thank you for joining me today. Just great to have you. Thank I want to um, quickly, uh, for everyone listening, this is the book to get. I, I couldn't even begin to skim the surface of all the things I learned. And again, it's called The Wuhan Incident, Bioweapons and the Emerging Global Reset. And isn't your website wuhanincident.com? Yes, that's correct. Wuhanincident.com. You'll learn a lot there. Order the book. You'll be so well informed. And you can correct all your friends who have all these misconceptions about <laughs> the source of COVID and the impact on the global reset. So. Mark Fulmer, again, thank you so very, right. very much for joining me. Right. Thank you, Debbie. Right. And thank you, everyone listening to America Can We Talk. I thank you so very much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. Next week on the show, we're going to have an enormously um, informed, well-informed expert, Kevin Freeman, talking with us about what in the world is going on with the bank collapses, uh, fear of financial collapse in America, central bank digital currency, or as I call it, it's communist bank digital control. That's what that really is. So a uh, great show next week and next Thursday. And again, thank you for, so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. I do this show to speak truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. Can we talk truth about America? Can you hear?